You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. God's mission is moving forward, uh, and we thank the Lord for technology, right? That we can still gather, we can still preach and encourage uh, from God's Word. And so, it's a joy to be with you, and as I do often when I come up here, uh, I'm James, and I, and I oversee a lot of things with families. I just want to brag on our kids of the church. Many of you may not even know this, but leading up to Christmas, uh, we had a fundraising uh, goal of raising money for Elizabeth House, which is just a nonprofit here in town that's helping uh, mothers um, um, who are having kids, and um, our, our kids, um, all on their own, raised nearly $100 that actually Steffi was able uh, to bring to the Elizabeth House to just support their ongoing uh, needs as, uh, that they have as an organization. So I love it. I love seeing kids dig deep into generosity and to give out of just what God has already given to us. So way to go, kids. I am proud of you and encouraged in my own faith when I see you live that way. But we're going to continue on in Matthew today, uh, and we're going to run into a conversation of forgiveness between Jesus and his disciples. And so as we begin, I just want to share just a a, a fictional story to, to begin getting us to think about forgiveness. And it goes like this. There's a man, and he goes to his doctor because he's feeling absolutely terrible. And and after giving this man a a careful examination, you know, the doctor comes back into the room and he has this somber expression on his face. And he says, sir, I don't know how to break this news to you, but you have rabies and you're actually going to die very soon. And this man who receives the news, he very calmly gets out this this piece of paper and begins writing something down. And the doctor asks the guy, hey, are are you making a will? Like, what are you doing here? And the man says, no, I'm making a list of people who've wronged me that I'm going to go bite. Now, we, we, we laugh at this story, but the laughter is a recognition of truth. Because when we are wronged, we want to bite back. We want to get our revenge. But, but, but the opposite is also true, too. That when we are the ones who wrong someone else, when we are the ones who, who cause someone else the pain, we expect forgiveness, right? We all love to be forgiven. But, but when the onus is on us, when it's on us to forgive, is, there's a struggle. There, there's a resistance and often a refusal. You see, forgiveness is something we, we greatly enjoy, but hardly or, or, or find it difficult to employ. It's hard to forgive. And I know that maybe for some of us, we've been carrying in our hearts a deep grudge against another. Maybe for years or decades. And perhaps we've resolved never to forgive that person. Maybe, maybe we're in the spot of we've never felt compelled to forgive an individual. That, that the wrong committed was, was too painful uh, that just to, to let the offender off the hook doesn't, it doesn't make sense. 
Or maybe for some of us, we're just tired of being a doormat, right? We're tired of being walked on and being sinned against again and again and again by the same individual. Our capacity to forgive has run dry. Well, one pastor wrote this. He said that most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. And I agree. For for where unforgiveness abounds in our heart, our heart will also abound in bitterness, in, in resentment, in anger, in unkindness, and even in revenge and retaliation. So, so then where is our power? Where is the strength to forgive? How do we choose forgiveness over revenge? And let me be upfront and clear. I know that there are some of us listening who have greatly suffered the evil of someone else, of what someone has done to them. I acknowledge that. And forgiveness, this, this idea of forgiveness is, is incredibly, incredibly complex and large. I, I, I get it. But let, let me say to, to you as well that this is not a message of guilt or shame. Rather, Jesus in our passage that Steffi just wrote, it's, it's really a passage of, of mercy and hope. So let's just pray again that we, that we hear Jesus' words, not any lies, that we hear Jesus' words. Father, we come again to you praying by the power of your spirit to, to open our ears to your word, and that you would open your word to our ears. Lord, we need your help. Prune back any hedge of lies or, or disbelief that we may clearly hear from you. Amen. Well, if you're, if you're not there, you can turn to Matthew 18, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And as Steffi read, we, we, we have a, a parable in front of us today. And really, our, our big idea is going to be this, that the forgiven forgive. That, that those who've been forgiven, forgive. The forgiven, forgive. That's our big idea. And it starts with, with Peter coming to Jesus, and he has a problem with forgiveness. Peter has a problem with forgiveness. Look with me in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. And this is honestly a very good question. Remember where we've been in our text. Remember Zach last week, right? Jesus outlined verses there, 15 through 20, this, this pathway of restoration for any brother or sister in Christ who's in unrepentant in their sin. So, so this, this conversation that Peter engages with in Jesus, it's not a new conversation. It's a continuation of the very same conversation. And Peter is saying, okay, Jesus, I understand the pathway that you've, that you've outlined above, that if a brother or sister you know, sins, we, we, we lovingly you know, confront and we, we pray for restoration, and where there's, forgiveness, or where there's, where there's repentance, we, we, we forgive. I, I get that, Jesus. But, but, but here's my problem with it. What if that same person sins again and again and again? In a sense, Peter is, is asking Jesus, Jesus, is there a limit to how many times I forgive? 
And we see there in verse 21 that he even suggests such a limit. He says, how about seven times? And in ancient Judaism, there, there actually was a teaching of, of, of limiting forgiveness, that one only had to forgive the offender three times. Three times. That was the established standard at this time. So when Peter suggests seven, well, it may not seem generous to us. He's actually doubling the standard, even like adding a cherry on top for good measure. No doubt, like expecting like full affirmation from Jesus of like daring to go to the outer limits of generosity when it comes to forgiveness. But Jesus shocks Peter. Verse 22, Jesus says to Peter, I do not say to you, Seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven, 490 times. You see, Jesus completely flips the script on Peter's understanding of forgiveness. And playing off the number that Peter gave to him, Jesus is not just saying, okay, 488 offense, forgive, 489th offense, forgive, 490th offense, forgive, 491th offense. Ha ha! You've reached your limit. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because if you're counting the number of times you forgive, you don't get it. There is no limit. And that's the principle here, that forgiveness is unlimited. Unlimited forgiveness, Peter. That's the principle. But, but we need to be careful here. For for while our forgiveness is to be unlimited to our brothers and sisters, it's not unconditional. It's not unconditional. Remember our context in verses 15 through 20. Within those of our church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, when there is repentance, that is the condition, repentance, then forgiveness is not optional. Forgiveness is required. If we forgive prior to repentance, we minimize sin, and we actually nullify the cross, saying it's not a big deal, you don't need to repent. But if we refuse to forgive after repentance, then we are the ones in sin. You see, where there is repentance, Jesus demands our forgiveness. And Jesus, always the great teacher, he takes this conversation between Peter to the next level. And he, and he shows Peter that he's actually asking the wrong question. The question should not be, Peter, how many times should I forgive? The question should be, how could I not forgive again? How could I not forgive again? That's the real question. And to illuminate this for Peter and for, for us now, Jesus tells this parable, a, ter a parable of, of remarkable forgiveness and remarkable unforgiveness. And first we see this remarkable forgiveness in the parable as we come to verse 23. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So this is what the kingdom of God will be like. He's comparing it to a king. This is what it's like. To a king who wished to settle accounts with the servants. And when the king began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
So there's a king. He's settling accounts and calls this servant who owes him 10,000 talents. There's, a, there's this debt. And, and this debt means nothing to us, right? But it's important to understand this. For a talent was a monetary unit worth. And, and get this, it's about 20 years worth of wage. 20 years. Years of wage. So we can do the math together. I didn't major in math. But I think I get this one, that if we take 20, the number of times, number of years it takes to, to earn, you know, one talent, times 10,000, the number of talents owed to the king, the servant owed the king 200,000 years worth of wages. 200,000 years worth of wages. This is like jaw-dropping, staggering debt. In fact, the sum of this debt, scholars say, exceeds the entire amount of money in circulation in this area at this time. Meaning, this man owed the king more money than Peter could even imagine. We're talking billions of dollars in today's value. Incalculable, an unpayable debt. And that's the point. That this amount of debt is so incredible that it could never, not in a lifetime or 10 or 20 or 100 lifetimes, be paid off. So what does the king do? Verse 25. He orders that the man and his family be be sold, right? Then some sense regain the, the pennies on the billions he's losing. And so this servant does what any one of us would do in the situation. He begs. Verse 26. The servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. This servant is at the end of his rope. He's asking for, for just a little more time, promising repayment. But we can laugh at this because a debt of a billions of dollars is not something we repay with just a little more time. So what does the king do? Verse 27, and out of pity for him, The master, the king of the servant, releases him and forgives him the debt. This is astounding. That this king forgives every penny of the billions owed and frees the man from a lifetime of slavery. See, one moment this servant is shackled and the next moment he's entirely free. And Peter then and us now, we hear this parable and we simply say, remarkable forgiveness. Now we need to remember that Jesus has carefully construed his parable, this parable, to make this forgiveness remarkable. Because Jesus, in a very real sense, he's holding up a mirror. I found this in the next gen room. (laughs) He's holding up a mirror that we might see ourselves. That like the servant, we too have racked up a massive unpayable debt. That, that like the servant, we too are in need of a merciful, forgiving king. And to truly understand the shock and scandal of this remarkable forgiveness, we must understand the shock and scandal of what God does in forgiving our debt 
the sin against him. As many of you know, the Bible says that you and I are sinners from birth. And it doesn't take us long to prove that either. And if you don't believe me, just have kids. But as we grow in life, our sin in some senses feels, begins to feel normal. But normalcy of sin doesn't make sin less than what it is. Sin is treason against the king, an offense to the God who created us, and it's the issue that separates us from God. It's 10,000 talents of separation. It's 200,000 years worth of separation. It's billions of dollars of separation. Insert Jesus. Insert remarkable forgiveness. Like the servant, one moment we lay shackled to a life of slavery. The next moment we are freed. Though the debt of our sin was great, the redeemer of our soul is greater. Amen? Do you, friends, see your debt like the debt of the servant? Do you see your redemption like the redemption of the servant? We sang it this morning, this, this song of amazing grace, but are we really amazed by it? Because when we see this grace, when we see this mercy, when we see what Jesus has done on the cross in the empty tomb, the question is not how many times must I forgive. The question is how could I not forgive again? Does this make sense? Because Jesus wants us to see this truth so plainly that we become forgiving people to the extent to which we understand God's forgiveness of us. We become forgiving people to the extent to which we understand God's forgiveness of us. And remember, look back, verse 23. That the point of this entire parable was to communicate what God's kingdom is like. And in God's kingdom, forgiveness is the way of life. Meaning those in God's family must be a forgiving people. This, this past week in, in Next Gen, the lesson was on Onesimus and Philemon. And one aspect of the lesson taught on the biblical value of welcoming others as Christ has, has welcomed us. And so part of the lesson was to make this, you know, a, a welcome sign for your home. And Lucy and, and other kids, I saw some pictures posted, they, they love this. And, and Lucy, for our home, she did an incredible job. She's a great artist, and we proudly hung this welcome sign banner on our front door. And, and together as a family, we, we talked and we decided that this value of welcoming others would be something that we would seek to uphold together as a family. That if you are a Davenport, then you will be a person who seeks to welcome others. Baby number three coming in six weeks, guess what? You're going to have to fall in line here. But this is exactly what God is saying, that if you're a member of my family, a citizen of my kingdom, you will be a person who forgives. 
So before we move on in the parable to see the other side of unforgiveness, I want to consider forgiveness together with you. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? In, in, in simplest terms, we can think of forgiveness as canceling a debt. And, and we see this in the parable. Either the one who owes has to, to pay up, or, or the one who is owed absorbs the cost as the king does. And using from this, this booklet that's put out by CCEF on forgiving others, I want to use an illustration and actually borrow a few lines from them. And if you are all interested, I would gladly um, mail this or drop this off at your house. Very, very um, profound wisdom in this of, as we think about forgiveness. But in this little booklet, they give an illustration that I think is helpful and the illustration is, it goes like this, of supposing you borrow my wheelbarrow, that I lent you my wheelbarrow, and when you return it, the wheel is, is flat, it's broken. And, and I have two choices in front of me, right? I can make you pay for the repair, or I can pay for it myself, right? Either way, someone is going to absorb the cost. Someone's going to absorb that debt. We, we can't minimize or pretend or ignore that it doesn't exist, because the wheelbarrow is broken the debt is real but say i choose to pay for it myself right that means i've forgiven your debt the debt has been canceled and if i choose to do so i give up every expectation to be repaid for what i'd suffered and lost in choosing to repair the wheelbarrow you see by forgiving i i chose to absorb the cost and now your debt has been fully and completely canceled And this beautifully illustrates the forgiveness every Christian has in God. For God cancels our debt of sin. It is forgiven. And scripture in in several places says that God will no longer remember our sins. That God will no longer remember our sins. So does an all-knowing God like suddenly now have amnesia when it comes to remembering our sins? The short answer is no. For when God says, I will remember your sins no more, the word remember is not a reference to memory. The word remember is a reference to a covenant, a promise. Therefore, when God forgives our sins, he's not forgetting our sins. He's promising not to treat us as our sins deserve. For on the cross, Jesus chose to absorb the full payment of our sins, and our debt has now been fully and completely canceled. You see, forgiveness, it's not a feeling. Forgiveness is always a promise. And Jay Adams and others, such as we'd find in this book, provide fantastic clarity. When, when, when we say we forgive someone, what, what is included in this promise? And I encourage you to, to write this down. There's a three-folded promise when we say we forgive someone. First, it says, I will not bring it up to your face. Meaning the only reason I'd bring this back up to the offenders for the purpose of perhaps growth or reconciliation, but not for revenge. I'm not going to bring it back to your face. And secondly, the promise is I'm not going to go around your back and talk to others about you. I'm not going to spread gossip. And thirdly, it says I'm not going to dwell on the sin. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to keep replaying the videotape of your sin over and over and over again in my mind. 
a threefolded promise. I'm not going to bring it to your face. I'm not going to go around your back, and I'm not going to dwell or sit in it. That's the promise. And each one of these promises is, is not a promise of emotion, right? It's a promise of your will. Because we're never going to feel like making or keeping these promises. For when we are wrong, there's always a pain, a, a, a loss, a, a debt that is created. And that pain has to go somewhere. And most naturally, we're always going to feel like sending that pain back to the person who's offended or hurt us. For that to us feels like it's justice, but that's actually revenge. You see, in choosing to forgive the repentant sinner, we choose to absorb that pain into our own life, just as Jesus chose to absorb our sin on the cross. And choosing to forgive as Jesus forgives, let me say that again, choosing to forgive as Jesus forgives, it accepts it acknowledges that we will suffer just as Jesus suffered. But it's not all doom and gloom here. For we know that on the other side of suffering, on the other side of Golgotha, is what? Is glory. There is always glory on the other side of suffering. And that's believing in the gospel. That's why we keep coming back to it every week as a church. That's why we hang a sign that reminds us of the gospel in our gathering space. For just as believing the gospel, it's not a one-time decision, so too forgiveness is not a one-time promise. It's a lifetime promise. Meaning every subsequent day that passes after I say I forgive you, I choose, I promise to continue to uphold these three promises I've made to you. That I'm not going to bring it back to your face. I'm not going to go around your back and I'm not going to dwell on it. And again in this booklet, there's such clarity when he says that forgiveness is an event and a process. I encourage you to write that down as well. Forgiveness is an event and a process. Forgiveness is an event. Yeah, we say, we state, I forgive you. There's an event that happens. But it's also a process that I will continue to remember this promise, this threefolded promise I've made, and I will choose not to act on any sinful desire, revenge that springs into my heart thereafter. For a few years, Emily and I worked at a Bible camp, a camp we loved, and quite honestly, we, we believed we'd spend, we thought we'd still be working there today. We thought we'd, we'd always work there. We loved it. But in time, we ran into some leadership challenges, and we felt strongly about certain things, and, and the camp directors felt strongly about certain things. And, and we entered into a time of just great relational strain, which which resulted in us resigning. And those were dark days. In a sense, this, something we loved so dearly was we felt taken from us. We felt wronged, betrayed, taken advantage of, sinned against. And I know in the days, weeks, months that ensued, I remember my heart just, just filling with bitterness, with, with anger, with the desire to retaliate, to get my justice. 
And it was around that time that Emily and I, we actually spent a month at a, a residential counseling place up in Michigan. And I remember one time with our counselor, he, he, he looked at us and asked simply, what did you expect from these camp directors? What did you expect? And he went on to say something like this, like, if a frog is a frog, it's a frog. Meaning if, if humans are sinners, then humans sin. And they will hurt you. We, we may go around expecting fairness and, and righteousness from, from those around us, but the reality is that we live in a world stained with sin. And, and here's the dagger, though. I'm not on any sort of moral high ground. I'm just as great a sinner as they are. And, and it took me a while to see this. But understanding that we're both in desperate need of the same remarkable forgiveness, I'm left with only one option. Forgiveness. Yet for me, and I'm sure for you as well, forgiveness, it doesn't come easy. And I'm learning, still learning, years later, how forgiveness is a lifelong promise that it's an event and a process for i can say i forgive you i've forgiven these individuals but to continue to uphold that promise that's challenging because there are moments that remind me of those deep painful days i experienced there are those moments when my little nephews and nieces talk about summer camp that reminds me. There's those moments when my old camp t-shirts fall out of the dresser that reminds me. There are moments where the old camp songs pop into my head that reminds me. And in those moments when these old sorrows come rushing back into my soul, I can feel so alone and so powerless to uphold that promise of forgiveness. But it's in those moments that I and that you, we must bring those sorrows that come rushing into our souls. We need to bring those sorrows and place them under Christ's suffering. For we are never alone. And as we, as we look to him, as we keep our eyes vertical of what is true in God, as we keep our eyes vertical, we find the strength horizontally to uphold that promise. We can't confuse the two. We must look vertically to horizontally forgive and to choose to forgive again and again. And, and this is what makes the church, the kingdom of God, so attractive to an outside world, that here is a people more eager to forgive than to condemn. You see, God is saying, this is the way of life for God's kingdom. And it stands in stark contrast to the way of the world, which Jesus depicts for us in the remaining account of the parable. As we go back to Matthew 18, picking up in 28, we see remarkable unforgiveness. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, the servant that was forgiven, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. 
you know, shockingly, this man, right, he has this remarkable experience and immediately begins to choke out the life of another. And before we rush to judgment, let, let's, let's understand first this, this second debt. How much is 100 denarii? Well, scholars say it probably it represented about three months' worth of wage. So, so it's not a small debt. It is significant. It's, it's today's dollars, we could probably think of it like 15 grand. This dude owed him about $15,000. So it is significant. But, but unlike the first debt, this debt is entirely payable. And we see in verse 29, the fellow, this fellow servant, he falls down and pleads with them, have patience with me and I will pay you. And, and just like the first servant, this servant, right, he also falls to the ground and begs for just a little more time. But unlike the compassionate king, this servant refuses forgiveness, verse 30. And he refused and put him in prison until this servant should pay the debt. And it, and it leaves us, uh, those who are reading this story, to find this, this forgiven servant, like his actions just entirely repulsive, right? And Jesus wants us to. That's how he construed the story. But again, Jesus is holding up this giant mirror. Because he wants us to see us, uh, see ourselves in this parable. That, that like the forgiven servant, we too possess the very same tendency to withhold the very mercy and forgiveness that we've received from God. That, that like the forgiven servant, we too rationalize our unforgiveness as absolutely justified. We, we may say, well, this offense, this pain, it's too big to forgive. We may say, well, time is the only thing that will heal this offense. i got to give it time. Or we say, I can't forgive what I, I can't forget. Or we say, if I forgive, they're just going to do it again. You see, we, we rationalize and believe these things because the pain of what we've experienced, the wrong that we've experienced, is real. The debt of this second servant, it's 15 grand. And I would be angry if I was out $15,000. That's significant to me. The pain is always real. The question is not whether or not people are going to hurt you or wrong you. The question is how are you going to respond? And so we must allow the gospel to correct our own rationalizations of unforgiveness. For instance, if we say the offense is too big to forgive, the gospel corrects that and, and informs us that we ourselves do not stand on any sort of moral high ground. We need the same forgiveness. When we say I can't forgive what I can't forget, the gospel corrects this and, and, and informs us that forgiveness absorbs the pain, the debt, just as Jesus absorbed our debt and now treats us as though the debt is canceled. Back to me in the camp. I can, I can easily rationalize away any need for forgiveness for the sake of just upholding justice. That I am on the side of truth. That I believe that I am the judge. I am the executioner of justice. But when I believe these rationalizations, I will fail every time to uphold the threefolded promise made. I'll turn to those in my life who feel the same way about the camp and begin to spread gossip. 
I'll begin to replay the events that led to our resignation over and over again in my heart, and I'll turn to bitterness and anger. And when I fall into this space, my heart is just as repulsive as the servant in the parable. Forgiven by God, yet unwilling to forgive. You see this. That whenever we find our hearts unwilling to forgive, we must bring that under the gospel and allow the gospel to correct our thinking. Because the gospel, it gives me every reason to release my grip on the role of judge. The gospel grants me the peace knowing that God is the only true and just and righteous and merciful judge, not I. But if we refuse to forgive, Jesus offers a damning consequence. In verse 32, then the master, the king, summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the master delivered him, this forgiven servant, to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. And Christian, take heed. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Notice what actually provoked the anger of the king in this parable. The king wasn't angered when it was revealed the servant mismanaged his money. The king was angered when his mercy was mismanaged. This this, this servant in this parable, he's not lord over the king, and neither are we lord over Jesus. Meaning as citizens of God's kingdom, being a part of God's family, we, we don't live above God's reign. We submit our lives under God's reign. And, and this is challenging because we, God's kingdom is not fully realized yet. We live now in a culture and a space that encourages and even celebrates revenge and retaliation, right? This rise of, of cancel culture that if you're offended, that if you're wrong, you can just, you have the, uh, uh, um, the right to, to write that person off, to have nothing to do with them. But that's not the way of God's kingdom, In God's kingdom, we meet repentance with forgiveness every time. And so I think the question, though, that we're probably left with is, what if there's not repentance? What if there's not repentance? Is is this, are we freed from forgiving? Am Am I off the hook? Well, I'd say look to Jesus. When you were lost and unrepentant, how did Jesus treat you? He he didn't cancel you. He actually moved towards you and went to the cross. When we are wronged and there's no repentance, we live as Jesus lived. We we, we give the offender every opportunity for repentance. We practice Paul's hard instruction found in Romans 12 to bless those who persecute us. That so far as it depends on us that we will live peaceably with all, that we will not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We, we pray, Father, you know what has happened between me and this person. Help me not to be angry or bitter or seek revenge, but help me to love and desire only their good. Use me, Father, 
in any way to bring them to repentance. This is it's not an easy prayer. That's not an easy set of instructions, but the way of the cross is not always easy. But it was at the cross where we received our forgiveness and freedom. And, and every time we forgive another person, we're actually saying thank you to God who in Christ has forgiven us. You see, forgiveness is trusting that the gospel is true. Forgiveness is trusting that the gospel is true. The forgiven forgive. And when we do forgive, we follow Jesus into the hard things of this world, and we bring redemption. But when we don't, when we choose not to forgive, we prove how little of his forgiveness we understand. The forgiven forgive. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for this parable. Though hard to fully just get our minds or just the complexities about it as we apply it to real life, Lord, there's tremendous difficulty. There's tremendous pain. Lord, we acknowledge the fallen world in which we live and the sin of the mess of which we've all contributed to. And as we think about that, God, we come to you and praise you that you have redeemed us, that you have made a way out of our sin. You went to the cross willingly, absorbing the cost, our cost, the pain, the debt, so that we may have freedom. So, Lord, out of that, may we live accordingly. Would you help us by your Spirit to strengthen and encourage us to always look vertical, to see the good news of the gospel. In those moments when sorrows come rushing in, when hurt comes rushing in, Lord, gently remind us of the truth of the gospel that we may submit all of us, all of our being under the truth of the gospel, that the gospel would be magnified. That even if there's not repentance, Lord, that there would be redemption, that you would use us in ways to bring about the repentance of the people we love. Lord, we thank you for this text. Though it be hard, we pray for your help to apply it in our life. We love you. We worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.